Revelation chapter 5. John writes, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll (coughs) or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Let's stop there and, and, uh, and, and cover this. You remember, of course, because I, I mention it frequently, that chapter and verse divisions are not part of the original text. This is simply a continuation from what began in chapter 5, or chapter 4. And what begins in chapter 4 is John hearing the voice of Christ, the voice which he had heard speaking to him like a trumpet, and that's a reference back to chapter 1, saying, come up here and I will show you what, may, what must take place after this. And then immediately John is in the Spirit and, and he experiences this vision. It's, it, he is not literally in heaven. He sees a vision of God on the throne. He sees a vision of the glory of God. He sees the Holy Spirit. God is invisible. Excuse me, the Spirit of God is invisible. He's seeing a vision. He's experiencing a vision. And the vision continues on in chapter 5. We know that the vision continues on in, the chapter, in chapter 5 because I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, God is invisible, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. If it's closed up and sealed, how would he know that it's written on both sides? It's a vision. The Holy Spirit has made it clear to him that it is. Now, the scroll figures heavily throughout this entire chapter. It's really one of the pillars of the chapter. It's held by God the Father on the throne. In chapter or in verse 2, the angel proclaims with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Verse 3 says, no one in creation is worthy to, to open the scroll or look inside. In verse 4, John weeps because no one in creation is worthy to open it or look inside. We're told in verse 5 that the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, is worthy to open the scroll. In verse 7, we see that it's the Lamb who is the Lion and, and the Son of David who takes the scroll from the hand of God. In verse 8, when he takes the scroll, the living creatures and, and elders fall down before him and worship because he's worthy. That worship expands to include countless creatures and beings in heaven in verse 11. It expands again to include every creature in creation, or rather creatures throughout creation, because the Lamb was able and worthy to take the scroll. So the scroll is is a key element to, to what we see. Now, spoiler alert, put your fingers in your ears if you don't like spoilers. Right now, we we're not told exactly what the scroll is, but we've got a couple of hints And one certainly comes from chapter 6. I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And as he opens the second seal and the third seal and the fourth, judgment begins to take place. So these seals represent judgment. By the way, the seventh seal eventually leads to the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet eventually leads to the seven bowls, the seven plagues that are 
poured out. So that the seals just kind of transform into the trumpets, the trumpets into the bowls, as judgment takes place in a very systematic way. But that's not all the scroll is. Later on in, in the book, an angel gives John a, a scroll. It's not described as being this scroll, but it's not described as not being this scroll. He gives John a scroll and tells him to eat it, and John eats it. And it's sweet in his mouth and bitter in his stomach, as, as the sweetness of what God has promised to do and the reality of what's happening in judgment come into play. And then, of course, when, when the final judgment happens with humanity, all those whose names were not found in the Lamb's book of life, a singular book, are cast into the lake of fire. And so I think that the, the scroll is not simply a statement of God's anger and wrath towards sin. I think the scroll is God's decree about the end of all things. John himself weeps when he realizes that no one is worthy to open the scroll. The angel makes a proclamation who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And notice that the angel doesn't ask, verse 2, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, not asking in a loud voice who is worthy. The angel is not looking for volunteers, and he's not applying a moral test. He's doing what we see in Psalm 113, who is like the Lord our God? Well, let's see, who is like the Lord our God? Let's make a list. It's a rhetorical question. The, the question, who is like the Lord our God, is really the statement, no one is like the Lord our God. The angel proclaims, who is worthy to open the, open the scroll? It's a proclamation, no one is worthy to open the scroll. And John is devastated by this. No one in heaven on earth is, or under the earth is able to open the scroll or look into it. And John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, the, the old apostle here is, is not simply watching an episode of TV. And he pauses it to do this or to do that. And then he'll go back to it later. He's immersed in this event. He knows it's a vision. There's nothing that ever says that John is completely mind-blown by the, by the things that he's seeing. He understands that it's a vision. But nevertheless, he's in it. He's immersed in it. We could say maybe in our time he's personally invested in it. And when he, when he realizes nobody is worthy to open the scroll, this is not moral worth, by the way. This is power and authority. Nobody is worthy, no one is able, it says in verse 3. He weeps, and he weeps loudly. We have to understand why John is there. In chapter 1, John hears a, a voice behind him. He says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And then he lists the churches. John turns to see the risen Christ there in a, uh, in a terribly glorified way, so much so that John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, fell down as though he was dead. So just as an aside, people today who say, Jesus appeared to me and I just jumped and danced are not seeing Jesus. His disciple, 
who loved him and who Jesus loved in a unique way fell down when he saw him. It's a, it's a horrific thing for born-again Christians in their flesh to see the risen Lord. Not because your new heart and your spirit, living spirit, is afraid of him, but because your flesh is terrified. And it rules so much of who we are. Later on, John, uh, Jesus says to John in verse 19 of chapter 1, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. There's a future element to this. In chapters 2 and 3, we have the letters to the seven churches. And then in chapter 4, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing and open. It's verse 1. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, that's Jesus, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And now as chapter 5 opens up, everybody's attention is drawn to the scroll. This is the decree of God for what's going to happen Verse 1, most translations say, I saw in the hand, right hand of him, and technically that's true, but we think about in the hand as being in the hand. The Greek text says it was upon, and so it's there in the palm of God. It's not being concealed, it's not being hidden, it's not even being restrained. It's just that the only one who can take it and open it and look into it has to be worthy of it. And there's nobody able to do that. And John looks at the scroll, and this scroll is what he is supposed to communicate to the churches. And if nobody can open it, then the churches miss this. We continue to live in the gospel, in the reality of the gospel. We continue to trust that Jesus will return because Scripture says that. But we, we live in, in confusion about what the end times are going to be like. We live in confusion and fear about what judgment might be like and what form it will take. We, we live with a concern that the wicked are going to escape. We live with all kinds of uncertainty and doubts without the book of Revelation, even though we don't study it much. So much of what becomes foundational for even reading the Gospels. How do we know that when Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world, well, we can read the end of the book. We can see it all take place. So John weeps, and he weeps loudly. And then the angel says to him that all is not lost. He says in verse 5, one of the, or one of the elders, rather, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David are titles. Lion of Judah comes from Genesis 49. Jacob is, is speaking to his sons. And verse 10 says, The scepter, which is the, the symbol of power and authority of a king, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And that applies to the Lord Jesus. He is the lion of Judah. The word lion is used in verses 8 and 9. I think verse 9. Isaiah 11.1 1 says, there shall, come forth from, uh, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So Jesus is being called the root of David in Revelation 5. He is a shoot from the stump of Jesse. The stump of Jesse is David. Jesus is the root or the shoot 
of David. He's the son of David. Well, with those titles, the Lion of Judah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and the Root of David, the Son of David, John immediately knows who he's talking about. John has been preaching the gospel for 60 years. He knows exactly who's being talked about. He's familiar with all the gospels, Paul's letters, Peter's letters. He knows all of that stuff. And so he knows that Jesus is being spoken about. Now, there's an interesting comparison here that... that I realize that it'll just kind of leave with you and you can kind of meditate on it. Remember all the years after David was anointed, Saul was king, Saul sinned against God, God rejected him as being king and sent Samuel to anoint David as king. And Samuel anoints David as king. And David is now the rightful king chosen by God over Israel. But Saul continues to reign. Saul's total reign was 40 years. He wasn't rejected after 40 years. He died after 40 years. Saul was rejected probably just a couple of years into his kingdom. He was, a, he was really a faithless man. So David had been anointed king and yet had no throne for 38 years or 35 years. The Lord Jesus is shown to be Lord by his resurrection from the dead, and he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But like David, he is waiting to take the kingdom away from Satan, away from wicked man and the fallen creation. I think that there's a very, very strong parallel that's there. And if that's true, if if what I'm seeing there is true in that comparison, then then in in this chapter we see Jesus step up and take his throne. John has been waiting for this. The Jews have been waiting for the Messiah to take the throne. And the scroll stays sealed, and it explains John's emotion. Well, John turns and he says, in between the throne... And the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven, spirit, seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. You know, like any lamb that you see. Uh, I'm, I'm a city boy. I wasn't raised around livestock. We had a little dog. They're not quite the same. And, and so I may not be right on this, but I'm pretty sure that when you kill a lamb, it doesn't stand up. I'm guessing, but I'm pretty sure that that doesn't happen. So when he sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain, he's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ who was crucified and resurrected. And he sees the signs of the crucifixion on him as, as though he had been slain. When Jesus shows up after his resurrection and, and shows his disciples the holes in his hands and the hole in his side and, his, and in his feet and offers to show them to Thomas, he still bears the marks of his sacrifice even in heaven. He has seven horns. Horns, when they're used figuratively in Scripture, speak of authority and power. And that's exactly what he needs to take this scroll. Seven is a number of completion. It's a number of perfection. Seven horns, power of God, or or extreme power. Seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Uh, It's an odd picture uh, in chapter 1 when he describes Jesus. 
Um, he says in his right hand, let's see. Um, no, I'm sorry, chapter, th- chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. It goes back to the prophet Zechariah, chapter 4, where the Holy Spirit is described as seven lamps and seven eyes. Lamps illuminating and eyes seeing and witnessing. It's a picture of God's knowledge and perfection and and omniscience. And in here, by the way, in Revelation 5 then, we have the Trinity, don't we? We have God the Father on the throne. We have God the Son, who is the Lion of Judah, the Son of David, the Lamb of God, and we have the Holy Spirit all present. And he went, verse 7 says, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus goes, the lamb goes, and takes the scroll from the right hand of God, and the living creatures and the elders who in the previous chapter are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is is to come, and saying, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and and created. In verse 4, or chapter 4, we're told that the living creatures never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and is to come. And when they say that, the elders never fail to fall down and offer worship to God for being the creator. Now that the lamb has taken the scroll, they fall down before the lamb. Each one is holding a harp. It's a picture of worship. Each one has got a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. This is not saying that we can pray to saints in heaven, and they will offer our prayers to God. What it's saying is, the saints of God have always wanted this moment when God vindicated himself over all creation. (coughs) This is the ultimate goal that we have. When when we hear about the the, the shootings and the killings and the the shooting in Fort Lauderdale, and and mom was telling me about a, a man who came upon a a police officer in Texas who was being beaten. He'd been shot twice. When, when we hear about those types of events and we beg God, do something. Deal with the injustice of our world. Deal with the sin in our world. Reveal your righteousness. Reveal your holiness. This is what we're asking for. Is that Jesus would take the scroll, the decree God has made regarding the resolution of all things, and that he would begin to carry it out. This is what we've been praying for all of this time. Now, what's interesting to me is that Jesus has done nothing except take the scroll at this point. He's just, he's just taken the scroll. He hasn't done anything with it. He hasn't opened it. He hasn't begun to break the seals on it. But see, this is the moment creation has been waiting for. 
Romans 8 says creation itself groans because of our sin. You think, you, you, you think, that, you know, and, and there's obviously disagreements on this, on the issue of global warming and how much of people contributed to global warming. I don't, personally, I don't think it's as much as, as some believe it is, but maybe there's some. But what I do know is that the Bible says, because of my sin and your sin, creation itself is groaning. So if we can cause creation to groan because of our sins, maybe we can cause the earth to sweat by our greenhouse emissions. Creation is groaning. And the saints, the people of God, have been praying for this moment. And now it's taking place. And they don't miss a beat. They immediately fall down and worship him. And notice what they say. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you have ransomed people for God, for you were slain. Jesus is the Lion of Judah. It's a picture of strength and authority and majesty and, frankly, brute force. It's what lions have. There's nothing particularly subtle about them. It's brute force. But they don't say, you, you are worthy because you've gained the kingdom through brute force. Jesus is the son of David. He is the root of David, which means he's in the line of David, which means that uh, uh, he's going to inherit David's throne. But that's not why Jesus gets David's throne. He doesn't get David's throne through inheritance. He doesn't just sit back and wait for it to land in his lap. Jesus is the lamb slain and resurrected. This is why he's worthy to open the scroll and to take the seal and or take the scroll and open its seals because he was slain and by his blood he has ransomed people for God. How important is redemption? How important is salvation? point in denying truth. You know, when a third of the room turns to look and see what she's doing, we'll just, you know, that's okay. It's not a problem. <laughs> How important is the redemption of the lost? It's through accomplishing the redemption of the lost that Jesus has given the kingdom because of his work. Now, there's an interesting statement in here. And I have an opinion on it. I'm going to share that opinion with you. And I'm not going to share that opinion harshly. I'm just going to share it clearly. It says that he has ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And I think that the only way that that works is that if there's election, if God knows ahead of time. If, if we must respond the right way in order to activate salvation, you know, when you get that envelope in the mail and it's a new credit card or a new ATM card and you take it out, it's got the sticker on it, you've got to call the 800 number and punch in the number to activate it. You've got the card. It's right there, but it's not activated. Synergism says man is given this, but until you activate it, 
If that's true, then there can't be people from every tribe and language and people and nation because think about the peoples and tribes and languages and nations who've never heard the gospel. There have been nations and peoples and tribes and languages ever since Cain walked out after killing Abel. How many tribes have, have come and gone before we were ever born? They, they tell us now that somewhere in the range of 1,000 or 1,500 languages still don't have the scriptures in their language, and, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds are considered unreached people groups. Unreached because they're, they're, if they, I think if they have, according to one group, if they have 1% of the population is confessing Christians, they're a reached people. So to have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of unreached people groups mean that in that tribe or that, that group that might be 30 or 40 or 50,000 people in Myanmar or Burma or Laos, there isn't even 1% Christian. They don't have the scriptures in their language. Well, how do they respond to the gospel if they've never heard the gospel? And if they die as a people and they all go to hell... They're all cast into the lake of fire. Then verse 9 is a lie. You don't have people from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. But if God chooses, and he accomplishes it because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, personally, I think that this is done through the redemption of miscarried and stillborn and aborted babies. Personally. I think it makes sense in terms of the justice of God, and it makes sense in terms of the mercy of God and the righteousness of God, but I don't know how he does it. But somehow he's able to reach down and grab a man, grab a woman, if they're adults, who have never even heard his name, and bring them home. And nevertheless, we're commanded to preach the gospel. We don't get to say because God elects to salvation, whoever he wants there will be there no matter what. He's commanded us to preach the gospel, and he works through the preaching of the gospel. Verse 10 says, gives us his purpose. You have made them a kingdom, which means he has brought all of these redeemed people under the headship of Jesus Christ. We become subject to him as our king. He has made them priests to our God. I've wondered about that for a long time. Priest to our God. And it just, it, it struck me literally this morning. I'm letting my coffee get cold. It's over on the, next to my, my spot on the couch. And I'm going through my notes. Priest to our God, it suddenly struck me, that's a vocation. Being a priest is a vocation. And the primary function of a priest is to worship. So he has made us citizens of a kingdom whose vocation is worship. I think that's cool. If I'm right. I might not be right. But I think that I might be right. And they shall reign on earth. Well, that's a remarkable statement from the living creatures and the 24 elders. Verse 11 says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice, singular, of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
Uh, a myriad, if you've got myriad in your Bible, you might have 10,000 in your Bible. A myriad is the, uh, myriad is the Greek word for 10,000. It's the highest named number they have, to my knowledge. Myriads of myriads, 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. I tried to say it was a million the other night, and Dennis corrected me. So it's 100 million. And then thousands of thousands could be 100,000, perhaps, or more. Um, Now, either these numbers are meant in a very literal sense, so that in heaven there are well over 100 million angels, or the numbers are meant figuratively to say it's beyond number, which means it's far beyond 100 million. What's fascinating is that they say with a loud voice, singular. They're together on this. This is not a time for personal expression. What are you thankful for today? It's good to be thankful to God. It really is. By all means, give praise to God. Be thankful to God. But it's not about how you feel about what he's done for you. It's all about him. And what he has done is recognized equally by all. So, Worship has expanded now. It's exploded from the living creatures and the elders into these myriads of angels. But then it expands again. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. At the very least, he's talking about every sort of creature in every sort of place. I don't think that I don't think that, that that John is hearing Satan and the demons worshiping. I don't think he's hearing wicked humanity worshiping. This is happening at a point in time in heaven, and that point in time is immediately before the judgment, final judgment on the earth, which takes place because the wicked on the earth won't worship God. If they were willing to bow their knee and do this, there wouldn't be any judgment coming. So at the very least, John is saying creatures everywhere, from every sphere, are worshiping God. So so worship has exploded from the four living creatures and the 24 elders to the hundreds of millions of angels in heaven to every creature in creation. And to that, the four living creatures in verse 14, the only thing that they can say is, Amen. Amen. They've never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and who is to come. But this has so overwhelmed their words that they just say amen and the 24 elders fall down and worship. Jesus Christ is worthy. He possesses all power and authority. His authority is not because of brute force or inheritance. It's because he laid down his life by his blood redeemed a people for his name. He has made those people a kingdom. They're under his authority. He has made them priests, which means their vocation is worship. And they're going to rule on earth. So all power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing rightfully belong to Christ and Christ alone. He is exalted. To him every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord of the glory of God the Father. So the the four living creatures at the end say amen. Do you say amen? Do you say amen? Not amen to your prayers, to your dreams, but to who God is and what he has done 
in terms of his creation and his redemptive work and his judging work? Do you say amen to that? The elders worship him. Do you worship him? Not giving him thanks for what he's done for you, which is great. We need to do that. But worshiping because he is who he is. Uh, I, I think last week, or it might have been the week before, but I think it was last week I made the comment, if, if all God ever did was create you and did nothing for you, you owe him all your worship. Every bit. And so we begin our worship with exalting him, glorying in him, simply because he is. I think after that is when we say, and, and not only that, but you've smiled upon me. You've granted me your grace. You've granted me your blessings. You gave me life. You sought me out. You sought me when I was a stranger, the hymn says. You've given me your spirit. You've given me eternity. You've given me faith. You've joined me to a body of people that you have saved and made me part of your body. You've given me uh, wonderful parents who love me and a wife who loves me and awesome kids and wonderful grandchildren. But see, none of those other things make sense if I don't begin with worshiping him for being who he is. Because, you know, once I stop worshiping him or once I get below that level of who he is and I start looking at what I experience, everything there can come, can come away. The exception of eternal life. But I can lose my assurance. I can lose my family without there being any sin or wrongdoing. One of these days... God willing, it's many, many years from now, but one of these days, Linda and I, Linda or I will be alone. One of these days, Kevin, Sarah, and Grace are going to bury their, their mom and dad. If you base your thanksgiving on that person, on this thing, on this experience, it's only going to be there temporarily. If you worship God for who he is, you can worship him every moment of every hour. And out of that, you'll start seeing the blessings that he has given you and given us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your holiness. We thank you for beginning this, this frankly difficult portion on, on final judgment when you systematically deconstruct the sinful world and restore all things to their rightful place in relating to you either for redemption or for judgment. Thank you for beginning with your greatness. Thank you for beginning with your uh, majesty, with your power, with your glory, for reminding us that we are not God, for reminding us that there are reasons to worship and to give thanks that have nothing to do with what we experience. That, Lord, if you closed your eyes to us for the rest of our natural days, we still owe you all of our worship all of the time. We thank you that you don't close your eyes to us. We thank you that you carefully watch over us and love us and bless us with so many good things. But you, above all else that you do, you are worthy. And we thank you for that in Jesus' holy name. Amen.